Hey, Tommy from The Run Testers and welcome to another podcast special. This episode is a really exciting one because I got the opportunity to speak to Sir Chris Hoy, a man who needs very little introduction. He's a track cyclist who's won so many uh, different medals, whether that's world championships or the Olympics. But there's loads of stuff that I didn't know a lot about. He's a racing driver. He also has his own podcast and he is an author as well. So there was plenty for us to talk about on the pod. Uh, so instead of me waffling on about it, let's dive in and see what Chris had to say. Welcome, Chris, to the Run Testers podcast. How's it going? Hi, Tom. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Very excited. Thank you so much for joining. I, I can safely say you're the first sir we've had on, on the podcast. So it's a big a big deal for us. Yeah, you're intimidated. Does that make you uh, kind of, have you had to read about the protocol? You know, I've, I've noticed you didn't, you didn't bow before I came into the, the chat room here. No, no. Uh, well, I, I, I did uh, seek some advice beforehand, but it was absolutely useless. So uh, I haven't got any protocol at all to work towards. Um, it's funny. Sometimes people do get a bit funny about it and you forget. It's such a weird thing. It's a huge honour to be given any kind of thing like that. But a knighthood, it's, it seems to be more of an issue or more of a of interest abroad. Like when you go into other countries, they're fascinated by it. And because, I mean, I got my knighthood about 14 or 15 years ago now. So you kind of you kind of get used to it in a way, but every now and again you stop and think it's quite bizarre and it's quite it's quite a well it's a huge honour, um, but yeah, it's it's all I'm, good fun. I'm sure it's something I'm never going to have to worry about, but um, how well, you never know. This podcast, <laughs> you know, you could easily end up. I don't know. I wonder if anyone's ever got a knighthood from off the back of a podcast. Do you find it massively um, since you you got the knighthood? Do you, how do you find that's impacted your day to day life? Do you? Do you get different uh, sort no, of people at phone calls? There's no, there's no practical sort of, the, you know, you read all these things, you get like, if you get the freedom of the city or something, you, you read through there's actual technical guidelines and you can, you can herd your sheep up the high streets or you can, you know, these things that were written 200 years ago. But actually there's, as far as I'm aware, um, unless there's some sort of secret knights society that they've not given me any a, a, <laughs> sort of a, a heads up that exists, yeah, it's just a really nice thing. And at the time, I mean, now we've got who we've got Bradley Wiggins, Jason Kenny, Dave Brilsford, um, and then the Damehoods. You've got Laura Kenny. But at the time, it was it was uh, the first one for cycling and such a it, it just for a small sport like track cycling. It, it just gives a bit more attention from the wider public, and it's great to get for your sport to get recognition. And it's yeah, it was really exciting. I mean, it's it was during a time when cycling was really taking off in, in, in the UK because it was. When I started as a kid, it was a very much a niche sport. You had to explain to people, what, you know, I remember getting in taxis and stuff and they'll, oh, you know, what do you do for a living? And, oh, I'm a professional cyclist. And then, they, you know, this a blank look on their faces, you know, what do you do, to, you know, Tour de France? No, no, no. All right, well, you're like a courier then. Do you deliver packages? It's like, no, no, I'm, I, that's a race on the velodrome. And I go, and no one had heard of it. And then yeah. this, this kind of massive boost in cycling from 2008 to 2012 and you know everybody wanted to get a bike and get active yeah. well I, su- I suppose it's 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 changed quite a bit in recent years with social media and um sports people uh, and, and especially sports that were probably lesser known uh back in the days of you know five tv channels and things now they're superstars in their own right and maybe not just for the sport maybe for all the other things that they do i know a lot of young athletes it, social media is 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 almost like 
part and parcel of the job now. It, it, you, you sort of build your presence on that, and that's that's a, a bit a big element of your career. But yeah, for you, that was that what didn't really exist at the time, did it? Yeah, I mean, I remember Beijing was Twitter had just sort of taken off at that point. I wasn't even on Twitter. London was the first games that really had a social media angle to it, and I I took the took the choice to come off social media entirely about a week before. I just found it really distracting, and I found that. You know, you, you were getting, it was crazy. I remember going into the games, um, I think I had about 100,000 followers on Twitter and I finished the games and it was like 500,000 or something mad. You know, it went, it, went, it went absolutely stratospheric during the games. But with that comes this avalanche of messages, 99% of which are really positive and nice ones, but you do get negative ones. And it, inevitably, it's the negative ones that stick in your mind. And I just didn't want to have any negativity or any just distraction, I thought, you know what, you can't pick and choose. You know, if you're going to start believing the positive press, you've, you've also got to take the negative press on board. So I thought I'm just going to completely switch off from it, focus on the job at hand. And But I think nowadays it's it's harder, isn't it? For, as you say, for athletes, it's a big part of who they are. It's a big part of their of their brand, if you want to call it that. Um, and they yeah. have to, or they, a lot of them feel they have to continually engage with social media and provide content and provide an insight to their fans into their world and, and it's there's a lot of pressure i think i think it's simpler without it yeah you know there's pros there's pros and cons to it but i think um when you're going into something as intense as an olympic games or a major championship you don't need additional distractions and i think it's uh, maybe that's why some of the bigger you know the professional athletes have got entourages and teams around them they have a social media manager who deals with it all and they don't have to worry about it completely and i i think especially when it comes to things like sport uh, traditionally sport you didn't really have to promote yourself in any way or tell people what you're doing. You just had to be good at the sport. But yeah. and whereas whereas obviously things like comedy and stuff, you want you need those people to see what you're doing and comment on it and, and sort of build that up. So it's a very different different world now for um mm. for sports people. And I think I, I imagine it's probably quite difficult for some because some probably just aren't interested in that. But they they you, you sort of have to these days. I think it, it, it depends on the sport as well. So I follow a lot of extreme sport folk on on. Um, Instagram, you know, a lot of the BMXers and just stuff that, yeah, mountain biking, down on mountain biking, and but it's particularly sports like skateboarding or BMX where there's new tricks being invented, so young sports where they're still in that kind of infancy of their, their development. And in the old days, you know, old, old days, it would take months or even, you know, it could be a year before you see the latest trick that Tony Hawk's just done, you know, it's been recorded yeah. in a VHS video and then it goes to shops and then you can't afford to buy the video, so you wait until your friend's got a copy and and then you see what they're doing in America, and that could take months and months and months. But now, as soon as somebody invents a new trick, it's it's there, it's on online immediately. You can see it, and then then people try and copy it and learn from them. So the sports develop at a much faster rate, exponentially. You see how the sport, the, you know, these young extreme sports are unbelievable now. How fast they're they're developing and, and progressing. Well, let's. Um, so, when I was uh, preparing this, I was going through your list of things that you've worked on, and it is a pretty long list now, Chris. I mean, you've you've, you've got obviously all of the. I'm pretty old, and... though. That's the thing you forget. Well, <laughs> you don't forget, but I've well, got a lot yeah, of time you, to do lots of things. You you've see. still packed a lot in. Uh, so, you, so you obviously you've got all the sporting achievements, the Olympics, uh, but also you've got. Uh, we talked about a bit of like knighthood, but you've done other things as well. You've you've written kids books. You've got a podcast now. It's how do you find time to to do all these things? I think it's it's just trying to pick and choose what you enjoy. If you enjoy what you do, you've got more passion for it. You put more effort in. It tends to have it tends to come across as well. If you're forced into doing things, 
or you do things because you think you should do them, A, you won't put your heart and soul into it, and B, it, yeah, it, the results don't tend to be quite as good. So, yeah, I think I'm in, in quite a, a, a very lucky position where you can pick and choose and you go, actually, do you know what? I mean, the podcast we do, it's I, I, don't, I, I don't actually look at the figures because I think they're so pitiful. I don't want to be demoralized by it. I just do it because I enjoy it. I do, I, you know, basically it's a myself and Matt Magendi, We it's called Sporting Misadventures. We interview comedians and we talk to them about their relationship with sport and the good and bad, the things that have happened to them, what sports they, they support and follow, funny things that have happened. And basically, you know, you get a chance to meet some of your comedy heroes and they do all the heavy lifting because they're comedians. <laughs> you kind of sit back and let them be entertaining. But it's brilliant fun. So, um, you know, it's one of these things we do purely for uh, as a means to an end, for our own enjoyment. And hopefully in time you can build a bit of following. But even if you don't, actually, do you know what? I do it because because I love it um, and it's great fun. Yeah, I'm a big fan of it. I, I got, um, well, uh, it was Joe Wilkinson who um, uh, who linked us up, obviously, from, from Chatterbit. Oh, he's a lovely man. And uh, I mean, that that podcast, I, I've never, up until about three years ago, I've never, never really listened to podcasts that much. I know there's been a massive boom of podcasts over the past couple of years, but I, I, I was marathon training and just needed something to listen to. And I had, you know, hours and hours every week trying to just getting bored of listening to the same music all the time. So I think I just started listening to to Chatterbix all the time and uh, just sort of opened up the doors to me for to, for other podcasts and uh, yours as well, obviously, because you went on Chatterbix and spoke to the guys. That's right. That was great. It was like a, it's quite bizarre when you go onto a podcast as a guest of, of a podcast that you're a massive fan on and you've yeah. listened to many times. I, as, you know, Joe and David, such distinct, distinctive voices, you feel like you know them even before. I mean, I've only chatted to them on, on my podcast and on their podcast, so twice. But you feel like you know them, you know, intimately, like you're your best pals. And, and it's quite weird when you actually do see them on your little Zoom screen on your laptop and chat to them for the first time. But but yeah, isn't it weird how, I, I don't know about you, but I used to always use music as my motivation or distraction when I was training. If I was doing long rides, I wouldn't listen to anything. I would take, you know, mainly for safety, I would take, you know, I wouldn't have AirPods in when I was riding a bike. But if I was doing, you know, in the gym or if I was doing efforts or I was coming off the track and listening to music, it was always music, never, never podcasts or the radio, or whatever. But actually, listening to people talk and just conversations, your brain can then be distracted from. As long as it's not a really intense session that you're having to focus on the effort too much. If it's a low-level kind of just slog, and you're trying not to think about how exhausted you are, or how far you've got to go, or how long you've got to go, isn't it a great way to distract yourself from that? That pain. Yeah. The time passes. It passes so much quicker. Yeah, I, I've, I've, um, I was saying, I, I never used to listen to to podcasts. I used to listen to audiobooks sometimes, but I really struggled because audiobooks you really have to pay attention to. If you miss a bit, you you, being, you don't know what's going on. For mm. you, you've got to rewind it. So, but with podcasts, they're just if you get the right ones, you just you, know, you can miss a bit and you dip into the next bit, and it just sort of you know gives you a bit of a just takes your mind off of things. But um, yeah, but yeah, you, you I've I've been listening to your one, and you, the fact that you get to chat to all these fantastic comedians if not and you've had some brilliant names on there and alex horn and obviously mm. david and and, and joe uh, is it reese as well you've had on there didn't you uh, yeah we've got we've had we've had so many we've been so lucky um just started a second season we've got jack white all coming on i don't wow. even know if that's public yet or not but anyway yeah just yeah it's amazing and a lot of it we're lucky because well matt's brother 
is in the, the comedy industry. He's an agent, so he has he has got quite an impressive little black book. And if you meet, you know, if I've met people at events, whatever, and you, that gives you a foot in the door, and you sort of you plead with them, and, and you hope that they're going to, you know, come and give you an hour of their time. But it's yeah. it's just um, it's just really interesting, and also to see what how sport how sport is, you know, how far reaching sport is, and how many people that you might not assume would be really into sport or interested in it, but how passionate they are about, you know, it could be something quite niche as well. We wouldn't necessarily have football is one of the most common themes in our chats. And ironically, I'm not really that into football, but most of our guests do follow football teams or played football when they were younger. But yeah, you get a few a few interesting ones that are more niche sports. Um, Josh Pugh, well, he plays football for, it's the visually impaired team in for England. Yeah, so he's yeah. an international, he's a comedian and he's an international footballer. Yeah, it's I, I enjoyed the the Josh Pugh. I'm a massive fan of Josh Josh Pugh at the moment. Um, but I think I think the it's interesting great, thing it? is that podcast you you've sort of shifted it a bit because you normally associate podcasts. It's always comedians who set up podcasts and they get guests on and they're sort of driving it. But you're getting comedians on your podcast and it sort of shifts it around. And it, I think it's interesting because you actually get a different view of w- what they're up to and things because they're normally things they probably wouldn't ever talk about because uh, they're normally driving their conversation through a comedy angle. Exactly, and. It's what's interesting too is you see a different side to a lot of the comedians. You expect them to come on with the big persona, the kind of stage persona, and often they can be a little bit shy or you know they're just kind of not maybe not quite in the comfort zone because they're not in control. They don't know necessarily exactly where the chat's going to go. But hopefully you get them relaxed and then and then as you say you get a different a different perspective. And because they're comedians, they're just funny. They're, they've got funny bones and they they have this ability to to observe. The same things that we see, but observe it from a different angle, and inevitably there's some kind of humorous angle to it. So, you know, well, who was it? We had uh, Rob Orton on recently, and he was talking about kids, uh, you know, kids karate, and he said it's like basically it's angry dancing for kids. You know, they sort of dancing around in a kind of an aggressive way, and it's my son does taekwondo. And it's the same thing. They basically initially all they're doing is hopping around, sort of punching midair and kicking yeah. midair, <laughs> angry dancing for kids. I thought, yeah. Absolutely spot on. <laughs> well, while we're on the subject of podcasts, you, I'm guessing you listen to quite a few podcasts. Obviously, you're a fan of them. Is there anything, what, what sort of podcasts or what, you, what are the ones you really enjoy listening to when you're either training or out and about? Do you know what? Most of my training at the moment is done indoors, really dull, on a static bike, on Zwift, you know, virtual platform, mm. an hour to an hour and a half when the weather's bad. And so you are, you know, unless you're doing a, intervals or something that requires real focus, you're just trying to distract yourself from that low level, that low level pain. Your heart rate is not particularly high, but you are still feeling it in the legs and the lungs. So, all kinds of things. I listen to car podcasts, collecting cars. Chris Harris, some of the the stuff that he does. I listen to um, Vittorio, Mike and Vittorio's Guide to Parenting, which ironically has nothing to do with parenting at all. They're just two very funny Irish comedians. Um, Chatterbix. I listen to uh, Richard Herring. Rahul oh, yeah, um that's a good one too. He's got some big names on his podcast, some big comedians on there. Who else have I listened to recently? Yeah, basically, I, I quite often, it's quite nice just dropping in and listening, you know, watching, listening or watching one that you've not seen before. Mm. And well, there's just, plenty of choice these days, isn't there? There is. I think that's a big challenge as well because everybody's got a podcast and there's only so much time. But equally, a lot of them you feel you can just drop in and it's, you know, you, you don't have to know anything about the background, just listen to it. And learn, and even just something different that you you learn something new about yeah. um, a topic or something that you. Oh, what was the one I was listening to recently? Oh, this is really rubbish. I should have done some. Should have done some <laughs> prep for it. Um, should be a decent guest and do some preparation. But anyway, yeah, it's 
I think there's something in there about the distraction of the mind. You know, when you're doing, so when I was doing really high intensity, when you're doing short efforts, you know, I'm talking efforts less than a minute, like I used to, because I used to race between sort of 20 seconds and a minute. So really, really high intensity, absolute anaerobic, all out, full, you know, full blown efforts. And you've got to be task specific in that time. You've got to be focused on what you're doing. You know, if you're not completely in in the, the activity in the moment, then you're not going to be able to react quick enough and, and it's not going to be good. But the opposite is, is true, as you know, for, for endurance activities. So my, my life, my, sort of, my training and my life has changed massively since I retired from cycling 12 years ago now. And and therefore you need to find new ways to, to adapt. And, and mm-hmm. nothing, yeah, I think that the brain is a massive part of physical activity and how what you think you can cope with, what you think you can deal with in terms of volume, in terms of intensity. We've always we've got way more capacity for work than we think we have. And I think that's the the main difference between professional and amateur athletes, isn't there physiques? Okay, you, you can they do change as a byproduct of what you do in your in your your training. But actually I think it's the attitude, it's the mind, it's mm-hmm. the ability to to, to to tell your body what you're going to do. And you're in charge, not your body. It's, you know, you tell your body what you want it to do. Um, and, yeah. it, and that takes time to learn and to develop those skills. Okay, so we're, obviously we're, we're, we're runners. We talk about uh, running quite a bit. Has running ever played a part in your your fitness career or your, your training? Um, not in the later years, but in like I loved running as a kid. I used to do, well, I think like all kids, you know, sports day, you do your, your sort of 100 metres and 400 metres and whatever. And then I got into cross country. So although I was a sprinter and cycling, I, I, as a kid, I used to try and do, I used to love all sports. And I, I did a bit of cross country. I, I got top 10 in the Scottish cross country championships when I was probably, it was primary six, mm-hmm. primary seven. So I would have been about 12 maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great, but I was doing... BMX at the time, I was doing rugby, I was doing loads of sports and it was one of these things that I just did as well. You know, I didn't really focus on it. And then when cycling started taking off, it was it kind of took a back seat. But um, the trouble with cycling is that there's like a mantra that cyclists have. Don't stand if you can sit, don't sit if you can lie down. So basically you're either training on the bike yeah. or you get the weight off your legs and, and rest, get your feet up. We don't walk anywhere. Well, minute, well, literally, you won't go out, you know, on your day off, you wouldn't just go out wandering around, you know, say you're in a, a different city, different country, you wouldn't go sightseeing, sightseeing just wandering around. You would say, right, if we're going to go out, it has to be, you know, minimal impact to our recovery, get off your feet. Ideally, you just basically used to keep your feet up and chill out, really boring and really dull, but it was the optimal way to recover, mainly because running or, you know, anything involving running you know, it's the eccentric part of the, the the action. There is no eccentric part in the cycling motion. It's all concentric. So it's very unspecific to do running training for cycling. So, um, yeah, basically I didn't run from probably about the age of 19, 18 or 19 until I retired. And then as all cyclists do when they retire, they go, right, I need to find a way to keep fit that doesn't necessarily involve getting your lycra on and riding for two or three hours, you know, every day. When you're traveling around and you're busy, you don't have to take your bike with you. So a pair of trainers, a pair of shorts, you know, jump out of the hotel, go for a half hour run. Great. I did that in my first first holiday after I retired. Came back after two or three weeks, started having this pain in my foot and inevitably picked up an injury. Went to the, the physio, wouldn't go away, had a scan and I've got this thing in my foot, which is basically one of the metatarsals is, it's called Freiburg syndrome or something. It's like a, instead of being slightly rounded, it's square and it's a, a kind of bone issue. And the, the only the only remedy is to basically cut the bone and rotate it and bolt it back on. 
And I thought, you know what? I'll probably just not run. I think I'll just I'll just give it a miss. It's not that important to me. Yeah. So yeah, I don't I don't run anymore now, unfortunately. It's I do I look at runners with envy when you see how how sort of accessible it is and the fact you can go anywhere you choose where to go as soon as you leave your doorstep you are doing your activity um so yeah i, I totally get it and i and i've got friends who have become runners my wife became a runner and um, after i met her so maybe about must be about 15 more than 15 years ago now um maybe 20 years ago now and uh she wasn't into running and then just took it up and started doing you know 10ks and 5ks and stuff and yeah she almost evan- evangelical about it just changes people's lives so yeah i am i am jealous but not jealous enough to want to get an operation that would have my leg in a plastic cast for 10 weeks and um go through all that so yeah well you talked a bit though about retiring and how how your your training has changed over over time what what are the biggest things that you would say about the the difference now that you have when it comes to fitness when it comes to doing exercise to 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 your competitive days and how how has it changed your mindset on on that well the old days it was all about the numbers it was all about um you know basically you had to, to you're monitoring everything and the quality of training was everything and it was all you know like a stepping stone towards this end goal whereas i think you have to enjoy doing what you're doing you know you can't just be driven by a goal now you have to be you have to really enjoy the, the process of doing it because there's not a strong enough, or, you know, the reason you're doing it now is for your health, basically, for good health and and the feeling you get after it as well. So for me now, it's it's about being consistent. So realising that if you stop for a week, it's quite hard to get back into it. If you stop for two weeks, it's really hard to get back into it. And and therefore, I try and find time every day to do something, even if it's, even if it's half an hour on the static bike. You know, I wouldn't necessarily have, or definitely don't have enough time every day to go out on my bike for for two hours because you've for a two hour bike ride you've also got to factor in you know getting all your kit on filling out the bottles getting on the bike going out coming back in cleaning the bike you know sorting it all out that's one of the luxuries of being a runner you don't have to maintain your your bike um so you might have half an hour a day well that's fine you get on the indoor trainer and you could do eight sets of 30 second sprints with you know a minute and a half recovery in between or two minutes recovery really get your heart rate up really get the lactate burn you know get something a huge amount from half an hour that like you can, you know, your, your, well, your metabolism can be raised for 24 hours after an effort like that. You know, there, there's so much you can get. Whereas often you think oh, it's only half an hour. It's not going to make a difference. I'll wait and do it tomorrow and I'll do a proper ride tomorrow. But for me, I think I find it hard. If you, the longer you leave it, the harder it is to get back in. So a little bit every day, whether it's lifting weights, whether it's on the indoor bike, whether it's getting out in the fresh air, just trying to do something because mm-hmm. the way you feel after it, you just don't feel like it some days. You might not have slept well. I've got two young kids. You know, it's getting easier now. But when they were, you know, babies, it was it was really tough. And the thought of trying to squeeze a session in first thing in the morning—it's the last thing you want to do. But you always thank yourself afterwards, don't you? You always, you're always, you never finish a session and think, "I wish I hadn't done that." You know, it's yeah. it's always a feeling of like, "I'm so pleased to have. I'm glad I did." Remind myself that tomorrow when I'm when I'm thinking it's it's too much of an effort. And even harder at the moment with the, the cold nights and the bad weather. Yeah, and, and that's and that's why I'm a big softy because I just do it on the indoor on the indoor trainer. But then yeah. again, most of my career was spent riding round and round circles indoors. So right. I'm not yeah. I'm not the most uh, I'm a bit of a fair weather athlete, really, to be honest. Um, but it's yeah, I think yeah, I used to at this time of year as well. We used to go to Perth in Australia. We used to go and leave the UK either at the very beginning of January sometimes in December and spend maybe two months away in Australia and just have, you know, a warm weather training camp, even though you're training most of it indoors 
um, you still spend a fair bit of time out on the road on your bike. But mainly because, well, you know what your morale is like when it's dark and cold and mm. miserable weather. It, it does have an effect on you. So to, to be training in an environment where there's lots of daylight, blue skies, on the days off you've got, you know, you can go down to the beach, sit in a cafe and just watch the world go by. And, and the quality of rest is, is far greater. And you're also away from all the distractions at home. Certainly. Well, I'm I'm marathon training at the moment. I, every night I'm dreading going out down the, I live in Brighton, so I've got to go down the seafront and train and it's just pure wind all, all the way. Can't even work out how fast you're going because the wind's just pushing you back. And then you turn around and then the wind changes. Yeah. And it goes yeah. into your face both ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, I, the worst thing is when you start off and you, you think, wow, I'm really fast today. I'm really really making a <laughs> yeah. making a move and then you realize it's the wind and you're actually not doing uh, a lot you should try cycling it's even worse because the faster you go the more your air resistance becomes a, an issue it's it's so demoralizing like people think cycling's tough the, the the tough part about cycling is going up hills it's not the hills because you can see that you're going up you know when you're going up a hill you can actually see what you're gaining you're gaining elevation you're, you're the mountain you're climbing a hill you're climbing when it's wind it's just so demoralizing and there's there's you can't see it Riding on the flat, absolutely struggling. It's yeah. it's miserable. But um, but yeah. So you're doing this at a London marathon. You're training for is that? I am doing London, but I'm doing Boston this year. The week the weekend before. So um, weekend before. Why do they do them so early in the year? It's, it's a bit cruel, isn't it, to make you all train in the worst? Because you you, know, you can't just do a couple of weeks training. You've got to basically train the whole winter. Yeah, well, in April. It, the, the winter one. I hate. I I I actively avoid doing the um the the spring marathons because you actually get the benefit of the training over the summer when you go into the, the autumn marathons because you've been training in the heat and suddenly it's a bit cooler and you, you're actually better. It's like the opposite. You don't get any benefits training in the winter. It's all horrible. Um, it's quite hard to get out. And then eventually you get to it and it might be like a really warm day in April and then suddenly you're not equipped for it. So it's just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I it's, it's, it's not a nice time to do it. And I don't, I, I never look forward to the spring ones. Um, but unfortunately, some of the bigger ones are in spring. So, um, yeah, I guess it weeds out the people that are serious about their training and commit yeah. to it properly. I don't think, I think I'll do this, uh, this winter training period. And then I think I'm going to stick to, um, to the autumn ones because, uh, quite like training in the, in the summer, but oh, I love it. Not these winter ones. I've got to go out tonight and do a big one. And it's not a nice evening in Brighton at the moment. And when it's when you've got a big session like that planned, how do you approach it? Do you is it based on is it just get the volume done? Is there a set pace you have to go at? Do you account for the conditions? I mean, at the moment you just just got to keep ticking the boxes and get the get the hours in. It's a bit of a mix, really. Probably similar to, to to how you would do stuff. So a lot of the week is just getting the hours in, but tonight is a quality session, so that is very much got to hit these paces consistently up and down for like a interval session and uh yeah it's it's just not just not going to be fun because i because then you've got no idea if you're actually hitting that pace because obviously the wind is hitting you in the face and you might be actually trying harder than normal but you just mm. you just never know i talked a little bit earlier there about podcasts and, and mindset but uh, i think one of the most interesting things probably can help us with is when it comes to training hard and obviously there's a crossover with any sports when you're training hard because it's more it's not so much about the sport it's about how you you deal with the pain and the effort of that when you were competing or even now when you've got a hard session how do you deal with it how do you how do you get through it because you obviously got through it quite a lot in the past and quite successfully yeah so for to give you a kind of idea of what i used to do a normal week it would be um well you'd, you'd probably train about 
during the this pre-season when you're doing high volume, it could be up to 30, 35 hours of, of training a week. So even though you're a sprinter and I was only racing over a minute, the intensity of the training had to be very, very high, but also the volume was high too. So like a normal day when you're out in Oz pre-season, you would maybe ride to the gym in the morning as a warm-up, half an hour ride to the gym. You would do a two-hour gym session, um, all very sort of heavy weights, free, free weights, Olympic-style lifting, um, you know, high loads, low reps, ride home again. So another half hour ride home, then you would get some food, then you would do, you'd ride down the track, like an hour ride to the track in the afternoon, three hour track session. And that track session, you'd focus on a specific component of your fitness, of, of your your event. And then you'd ride home for an hour and then you'd get your massage and your physio and you'd, you know, eat your meal and get to bed and you'd repeat that six six days a week. So when you've got, an, so let's say, an eight week camp and you're into week two, and the fatigue is really starting to kick in um, and you start thinking, I can't do this for another week, let alone another seven weeks or six weeks or whatever you've got left. And then you, know, you would basically employ the same the same approach on a, a micro level as you do to a macro level. You would think, right, don't think about the next six weeks. Don't think about anything other than what I'm doing right here, right now. So you have a plan. You've got to have, you have that end goal. So you set your target, you set your ambitious target. Then you have a plan, you break it down and you have these micro steps towards that end goal. And as long as you've got a detailed plan and a, and a sort of a, a, a proper plan of what you're going to do, you don't need to worry about the second or third or fourth step on that that journey. Just focus on the, the very next thing you're going to do. And so for an example, let's say I was doing a, a session of the track where I was doing 10, 10 sprints and you get to number two and you're already suffering. And the, the quality of the session or the, the whole point of the session relies on the absolute maximal effort you can't do 99% because there's no point in doing it you've got to do 100% effort or rest that's that's all we used to do so if you're only given if you're if you hold back a little bit just because you think I've got nine more to go or eight more to go because I'm really struggling here then there's no point in doing it so you trick yourself when you say well don't think about the rest of those efforts all we're going to focus on is the very next one just do it absolutely all out and if, I, if I'm on my knees and I can't do any more then we'll pack up and go home but you don't, obviously. So you do the next one and you say to the same same thing, don't think about the next five, I'm just going to focus on this one and so on and so on. So it's about focusing on the here and the now, the present, not thinking about anything beyond that. And I think we can deal with pain. And aside from, you know, sport, you can, any, you can, you can suffer through things if you, if you don't think too far ahead. If you think too far ahead, you look at the bigger picture, it's overwhelming, It's it, it just psychs you out. Whereas if you say, right, right here, right now, I can always do one more stride, one more step. I can always do one more pedal rev. I can lift one more repetition of this weight, whatever it is. I can do one more and you do it and you go, right, do another one. And you, and you basically apply that logic and completely trick your, trick your body into doing more than it thinks it can do. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, it, it's so easy to just sort of just throw your hands up and go, no, no, I'm out. I can't do this. Yeah, that was, that's probably, um, if you look at a lot of the marathon training plans and things that people do when they, they get into running, you, you essentially get the whole plan at the start. You get 16 weeks or whatever, and you can see those those runs building up and building up over time. And it is quite overwhelming. You even see it with, uh, you know, Catch to 5K. You can sort of see how it's how it's developing and looking ahead and going, well, I can't do that. There's no way I can do do that at that point. But you can always do the sessions that are coming that, that are coming up immediately. So I think, yeah, it is a really um, the, the way that that I tend to work, to work. Um, I do some coaching as well. I don't like to give people their plan any further than like two or three days in advance because it's useless to them. They don't need to know that, and 
it's just daunting, isn't it? You can't really plan ahead. When when you were when you were training, is that similar for you? You just sort of got given the things as and when you needed to do them. Nobody would say in three weeks you need to be able to do this or whatever. Well, actually, I so I used to write my own program. So I, I when I started um, like back in the mid nineteen nineties, there were no full time coaches. So British Cycling had two full time members of staff, and the rest were all volunteers. Like sprinting was quite a niche part of the sport. There were, there were always lots of people doing the road and endurance cycling, but sprinters were we were a sort of a niche bunch, and there were no there were very few successful sprinters in the UK to to even learn from. So yeah, we basically myself, Craig McLean, Jason Queeley, we kind of coached each other or helped each other, and I did my degree in sports science. So I, I basically found out the answer to questions that I had that no one could help me with, and then I just started to structure my own training and plan it all out. And, and then as the years went by and we brought on more expertise and we had proper coaches and, you know, world-level coaches, I still, I would still write the program and bring it to them and say, this is what I want to do. And they would say, well, why are you doing it this way? Or why, what about this? And they would challenge you on it. And then you would, you know, it, it'd be a good way to sort of test out your the hypothesis of why you were doing it. And then as long as you had a scientific reason to justify it, they'd be like, well, okay, yeah, that sounds good. You've thought about this or... Maybe we'll tweak this a little bit, but that seems like a good, good approach. And and they would facilitate that program that you'd written. So I, I knew what was coming, um, obviously, further down the line. But it was I think once it was committed to paper, once you had it planned out, of course you can change things as you go. But it's for me, it always felt like a blueprint to success. I love the feeling of writing out my New Year's plan or even a four-year plan, you know, up to the next Olympics. And you would you might do it 12 times, you might do it 15 times, but when you finally got that that kind of blueprint of success you thought this this is if i follow this it's like a recipe to to bake a cake or whatever if i do this right and i follow the steps i believe this is going to get me in the right kind of the best shape of my life which won't guarantee a gold medal but i guarantee they'll be at my very best and that will be there or thereabouts so it was always yeah i I liked solving problems i liked the feeling of having a a challenge or or a problem to solve and trying to work it out Mm. i suppose the physical side of it yeah, well, I suppose in that, that level of involvement that you had uh, where you're building the, the program, you've also really invested in working out if that program works as well and not just being prescribed something to follow that might not work, which I think that's definitely something that is more commonplace now. That, that, that information, the, the, where the point where you were at, you were probably very involved in learning about those things. But nowadays, people can have a coach or whatever, and they can instantly go on the internet and go, well, is that right? Is what they've given me? And go and question the coach. So I think it is a really tricky one these days from a coaching point of view in that everyone is almost an expert, aren't they? Because they can find an answer instantly. But in reality, it's not the session that's important or not the, you know, the the, the individual elements of the rules. It's what is the long-term goal? And that's what yeah. people don't really have. Exactly, exactly. And it's also how you do it because there's no right one right way to do anything. And it's, you know, there's more than one, one way to skin a cat, as they say. And it's, I think the, the key thing in all of it is believing or buying into what you're doing. So, you know, these days often, you see it with some of the writers, um, the coaches, well, everything is kind of prescribed for them. And it's like, this is what you're doing. There's no debate. You know, I'm in charge. You you deal with riding your bike. We'll deal with planning it. Here's your kit bag. It's got all the kit. Here's your bike. Everything's done for you. It's almost like a one-size-fits-all approach. And then when it doesn't work out for that rider, if for whatever reason they don't win the gold medal, they come back and go, well, I did exactly what you told me to do, and I didn't win the medal, so it's not my fault. It must be your fault. Yeah. And it's, there's no there's no ownership. There's no responsibility taken accountability taken for for their performance and i think it's a shame you need to 
you need to buy into what you're doing. So you need to really believe in it. And it's, as I say, there's, there's no one single way of doing anything. But the one thing is for sure, if you don't believe in what you're doing, if you only commit 99% into it, you won't get the best, the, you won't get the optimum result. Yeah. You can't guarantee you're going to win, but you know that if you commit fully and say, right, I believe in this, and I'm going to, every single effort of every single session for this year, I'm going to throw myself at this 100%, and then we'll look at it, we'll, we'll, we can reassess at the end of the year. If I achieve my goal, amazing. If I don't, then well, we'll tweak the things that weren't quite right, and we'll adapt it over time. So you can't expect to, to you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. You can't expect to suddenly become a, a world beater overnight. It takes years and years and years. And I think a lot of people are misled by how quickly you can get to the top because it, it takes, you know, so long and so much effort and so many setbacks that you don't see and people don't talk about. It's demoralizing injuries, disappointments, days where you just don't feel right. There's no explanation why you're not going well, but, you, you know, we're human beings. We're not... We're not robots and yeah. um, it's just about sticking with it perseverance looking after yourself understanding there's going to be peaks and troughs um but but keeping going and, and committing to every single session I've got another thing I noted down here, which uh, I didn't actually know about you before I was um, do- doing my little bit of research. Not, I didn't do, didn't do loads. I never do that much. But um, the uh, you're, you're, you're a children's book author, which yeah. is which is something I I, I mean that it's, it's it seems to be an interesting area these days. Obviously, a lot of celebrities that become um, you know comedians. It seems to be quite a big thing for comedians to do these days, but. How how did that come about? What, what is that something you've always wanted to do, or is it just, it was, just stuff happen? Well, it was it was never anything I thought I would be able to do. So it was something about maybe about ten years ago we were discussing it, and it was we were trying at the stage we were looking for different ways to get kids into cycling and different ways to to inspire them and to and, and also I was just I just become a dad. I was just about to become a dad, and there were so many things that I feel like I'd learned in my cycling career that I wanted to get across. When you went when you go to schools and you meet kids and you talk to them and you. You try to instill this this belief in them that any one of you here can go on to achieve amazing things. You, you know, it's don't limit your ambitions, but also don't worry about the fact that right here, right now, you might not be the best in your class at football or maths or whatever it is you're doing, but you can get better. And the only person you have to beat is yourself. You don't have to worry about where you are relative to your friends, to your teammates, to whoever. All you've got to do is be better than you were yesterday and, and find a way to, you know, that, that's your big challenge. And, and that we all grow and develop and learn at different rates. So don't worry about where you are at the moment because that's not necessarily where you're going to be at the end. And, and, and yeah, all these little lessons, which I thought, well, we started thinking, well, maybe we could come up with some, some sort of a book, a single book with a story that would encompass all these things and, and try and encourage kids to, to, to follow the dream, but also get out on their bikes. You know, I, ultimately, I was passionate about or am passionate about getting kids active and on, on their bikes and enjoying enjoying life on two wheels like I did when I was their age. And so, yeah, we started exploring the options of how we could create a book. At that stage, I had no idea how to pitch a book to, or how to write a book for sort of five to eight-year-olds. My kids were, my, my son was like about six months old at that point. So I didn't have any experience. So I thought, well, I need to do this properly. So we approached, it was what's Joe Naden in the end, but approached the publishers and said, do you have any authors that I could work with and looked at a few but Joan Eden um, she's an amazing author for children and for young adults 
Um, spoke to her immediately, thought, yeah, we're on the same wavelength here. I had all these ideas for characters and themes and, and messages I wanted to get across. And so we, we, we basically started writing together at that point and came up with this character, Fergus, and it's, the books are called Flying Fergus, and it started out with two, two books, thinking that would be it, and it was great fun. And then did two more, and then two more, and in the end we did 10 books about his adventures on his magic bike, um, and all the different characters are sort of inspired by either family members or teammates or people I know or my heroes or, you know, different people in there. And, yeah, never thought I would, you know, on paper, you would never have thought that I would have done a single book, let alone 10. I'm sure my English teachers were quite amazed to to, to learn that I ended no, up being a children's it, author. It's but brilliant. It's, it's always something I've really... Um... When, when you see people who are not necessarily in that area and they work on children's books, I've always been fascinated by how that came about and never never really known about what the process for that is. Yeah, I mean, I guess for, for me, I just didn't have the confidence to, to pile in there and try and write. You didn't want to patronise the kids, but equally you didn't want to miss the point and go over their heads. So it, Joe was Joe's an expert at pitching it just right. And, and so it was just that safety safety blanket or, you know, just, I mean, she... She's such a, a great person. We got on it immediately, and Claire Elson as well, who did the illustrations. The three of us um, as a team. And then once you write the books, then you get to go kind of on tour and go to book festivals, and and then you meet kids who you know turn up and they've got the book and they've read it, and and you can test them and say you know you've read your book. All right, so who's your favourite character? And what's your favourite bit? And and it's it's amazing. And the number of people that you meet now who are like, oh, this is uh, this is Chris Oyes. You know, he won these Olympic medals. Like the kids, are like all right, and they go. He wrote Flying Fergus, you know, the book you read, and they're like, oh, wow, you know, they're impressed <laughs> yes, by, yeah. by, um, by Flying Fergus. But yeah, it's, it was, it's a really enjoyable thing. We've, we've sort of done the 10, and that's kind of, we think that's the end of it now. But you never say never. But yeah, it was a wonderful thing to do. But most of all, I, I kind of did it for a selfish reason, thinking, that, you know, it'd be lovely one day to have Callum or Clay, my kids, you know, sitting there, you know, before bedtime, reading the yeah. story with them. Of which Calm has shown zero interest so far. <laughs> it's like, what should we read? Do you want to read? Uh, do you want to read this? He's, no, no, I want to read George's Marvelous Medicine or whatever. Like, All right, okay, <laughs> me too. I mean, well, how old? How old is he now? And <laughs> um, nine, and Chloe's six. So right. a few of them will have friends at school who who are reading the books, and then they'll ask me to sign them for their friends or whatever. Oh wow! But, they, but at no point of the. It's like. Oh. Do you yeah. want to read it? No, no. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Might be a losing battle with that one. <laughs> <laughs> kids for you, that's what it's like. Yeah. Well, have you got brilliant. any kids yourself? I haven't got any kids, That's, no. uh, but uh, I do Not have uh, well, a, a, a niece who's just about the age for uh, reading uh, your books. So ah, I'm great. Set, send across something. And, um, I'll get, yeah, I'll get you, them. Even if your kids won't read them, I'll, I'll see if I can get <laughs> Well, th- thank you so much, Chris. It's been wonderful speaking to you. And some really interesting stuff to, uh, especially around the training and things, which um, which uh, I hadn't thought about. So, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All the very best. And um, I'll and if you're listening to this, head over to uh, Sporting Misadventures, which is uh, Chris's podcast, which is an excellent listen if you're if you're want something to listen to when you're doing your long runs and things like that. And we'll uh, well, good luck with everything, Chris. Catch you soon. Thanks, Tom. Take care, Bye. mate. This episode of the podcast was presented by Tom Wheatley and his guest, Sir Chris Hoy. 